not kind of technically you would well technically you could in a marathon you could wear you can wear any trainers you like in a marathon you can run well, you, can't, you can't actually <laughs> there we go you, you heard it here first folks on the bought the t-shirt so there are and it's partly because of this two-hour marathon that they brought in these new rules because basically they were nike were building up these these shoes with in effect kind of a very springy foam plate inside them that were getting more and more stacked to the point where it was starting to get a bit ridiculous <laughs> Darren and how are you sir I'm good thank you good to be here <laughs> yes it seems funny that we're only we're, we're actually for our friends at home we, we we live quite near to each other or we've just found out um so yeah, 20 miles away or something yeah like that. so I should have just put the, the kettle on instead <laughs> what an absolute um honor Darren and thank you so much uh, uh, just a, I'm going to do a very brief explanation and then you can correct me on all the stuff I've said that's wrong. Okay. But, but friends, when I was um, getting ready to run the length of the country, which I just made a sort of rash decision to do, I started to learn there was some wonderful literature out there about the actual physics um, and chemistry of running itself. Being an ex-Marine, we just put our boots on and ran. And I swear, I, I knew nothing more than that. I didn't know about heel strike as opposed to forefoot strike. I didn't know about posture. I, I wasn't aware that some of the top uh, runners in the world are completely vegan, um, which just, again, was all part of my learning curve. Um, and one of the books I read was this fabulous one called Running with the Kenyans which really put you in the heart of, of the world's best runners, um, put you in their, in their trainers, uh, excuse the pun. And I'm absolutely delighted um, today to have the author, Darren and Finn, on the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. There we go, friends at home. I'll put a link for this uh, below the video. And... Uh, Darren and you're, you're 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 obviously legendary in the running world. I you I you first um, were writing for Runners World. You've written for some of the big um, broadsheet newspapers, and you now run a running retreat, which will will um, will promote will promote that as well. How how did it start? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, so yeah, you were right. I was a journalist. I was writing for Runners World magazine. I was also writing for The Guardian. And not all, uh, so not all my writing was about running, but uh, I, was, I, was, I was into running. I was interested. I used to be a big serious runner as a teenager. I, I kind of ran national trials and stuff, uh, national cross country and all that kind of stuff. So it's always been in the back of my mind that I really 
kind of something I wanted to get back into, but life had kind of just whizzed by. I was about 35, working, living in London, working in London. And I, I was writing feature articles for the newspapers. And I, I had this idea I wanted to write a book. And I was looking for a subject, basically. And then I just kind of kind of started basically looking for a book to read about Kenyan runners. I'd always been fascinated by the Kenyan runners as a child. I'd uh, followed them. I'd been really amazed by them. But I realized I knew nothing about them. I knew nothing about their lives, what they were like. They just kind of ran on the track. I saw them running on the track and then disappear. And I didn't know anything else. And I realized there wasn't a book about the Kenyan runners, which to me seemed a bit mad. And I just, this idea, it took a few years really to germinate this idea that, because initially I had this idea to go to Kenya, run a marathon in Kenya and maybe meet a few of them. But then the idea to actually stay and train and perhaps get more serious about my running, because I'd been quite serious as a junior, but never as an adult. And just to see what I could do, I had this kind of feeling that perhaps you know, I, I, if I if I never if I never ran a marathon, for example, I I kind of have a slight regret, especially if I if I left it till I was, you know, too old to run what I would have considered a decent time, and I didn't even know what that was at that point. I still had to work out what that meant, but I felt as a as someone who could have been a serious runner, I, I wanted to post some kind of decent marathon time, which I then decided was under three hours, which is generally considered, you know, sub three hours is considered you know, obviously nowhere near elite level, but but a decent, a decent kind of shot. So I had this idea to run a marathon train, live in Kenya, and, and somehow managed to convince a publisher to give me the money to go out there. The other thing I did, I decided I had three small children and, and my wife, my wife's sister lived in Kenya already. So she was quite keen to come out. And we just, in the end, decided to go out, the five of us for the whole time, the whole six months, we went out there for six months. And we lived in this amazing little town called Iten, up in the Rift Valley. There's about 40,000 people live there. So it's kind of a small town, about the size of Totnes, where I live now. Uh, but there's about 2,000 professional or full-time runners in this one tiny town. So in, in Totnes, there's probably like maybe 20 amateur runners. Here you've got 2,000 runners. And, and of all those 2,000 runners, including the young, young junior women, I was the slowest by quite some distance. So it was quite a baptism of fire, but such an amazing place to spend six months as a runner. And the people were incredibly welcoming and just, you know, I, you just could turn up on, you know, there were certain street corners where groups would meet and you were told, just turn up there 6 a.m., stand on the corner, the group will come, they'll take you off. And in those groups, there were world record holders of Olympic champions and you just mix mix in with them and as long as you went on the easy day of course if you went on a hard day then you uh you could meet them but you wouldn't last very long in the run but they would do a lot of easy runs as well so i'd make sure i picked the easy day and just off we go off on a 15 mile run or something and uh yeah it was wonderful so that's where it began <laughs> had you been in had you been in africa before no I, well i no not really i've been to morocco which is a kind of completely different world uh but yeah. no i hadn't hadn't ever been to that part of Africa and had no real experience of it uh, and potentially was a little bit naive but I think that that paid into my favor in a little way I think I think if you'd been too like a lot of people were worried people who, who knew Kenya were worried that we were just going to live in a local house in this small town with three small children they thought it would be dangerous 
but we just kind of did it because we didn't really think too much about it and it was fine it was totally we got to know the neighbors the children would disappear in the morning and we'd go we'd after a few hours later we'd, have you seen the children we'd be wandering around the neighborhood looking for the children they'd be sitting in someone's house like drinking tea and watching usually like sermons on the tv <laughs> so yeah it was totally welcoming but in a way the naivety probably helped i think a little bit how did you avoid getting stomach upsets because obviously that's a, a, a one of a one of a runner's worst nightmares yeah we didn't really do anything particular I mean we ate in the local uh, some of the local cafes and stuff I mean I guess we probably wouldn't have eaten salad is one thing not to do we 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 did have bottled water the whole time uh, at least to drink I mean we were showering and washing in in the regular water uh, but yeah, we didn't we didn't go to great lengths to avoid it. I mean, the town where the runners live is a quite high altitude. I don't know if that affects the water or not, but it generally there's less sense of. I think a lot of things, uh, a lot of illnesses in, in in places like Africa come through the heat. You know, that increases the the mosquitoes. It increases the I don't know a lot of the a lot of illnesses thrive in in hot humid conditions. So we were in. Uh, at high altitude, the air is very thin. It feels very fresh. Uh, so we didn't, there was no worries about mosquitoes. There was no worry. We didn't really worry about anything. <laughs> mm. and, and we were fine. We didn't get any illnesses at all. So yeah, we totally cruised through. So going back to your marathon attempts, what what is your, your best marathon time? So now it's 2.50, but I did do, after Kenya, I did my first marathon. So I did a I did do a marathon in Kenya, which was uh, it's called the Lewa Marathon, and it takes place in a wildlife conservancy. So the actual it's so it's, it's hilly and it's dusty and it's at altitude and it's hot. Also, not that it affects your time, but there are like lions and cheetah and, and rhinoceroses roaming around. So you've got to be a little bit wary. That, that would probably make you faster, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, probably make you faster. I, I didn't see any lions, although the race was delayed because there were lions on the course, apparently, and they had to, they have these helicopters that kind of swoop down if the lions get too close. And then I, after the book, uh, after being in Kenya, I went to New York, around the New York Marathon. Uh, and that was my first proper road marathon. So the one in Kenya is very slow. It's all on dusty trails. So I did that in 255, which was... That was my first proper go at it and yeah i was quite pleased with that so and then i've done lots lots more since but 250 but, is still the best yeah to put it in um what's the word into context for for people that aren't runners i i did the six month training that you get when you find out that you've got a place in the london marathon or actually okay. i didn't get a place so i immediately went to a charity and i i ran it for um actually ran for prisoners with um, substance misuse issues. And the time you get between finding out you've got this place and the actual race itself is six months. So that's your, your window. I trained as hard as I could without overtraining. So I was running three, I, I, I always run either three times or four times a week when I'm training for events. So I got a bit of recovery time and again obviously ex-marine and even then I was utterly uh, delighted to cross the line and click my stopwatch 
and I was 356. So I'd got under the fabled, if basically the idea is if you're over four hours, you must have walked some or, or you're, yeah. you're quite a rough, you know, a slow runner. Shouldn't yeah. say rubbish. That's, that's rude. Yeah. Um, but sub three hours is, yeah. <laughs> sub three hours is incredible. The sub two hours that I think we've just seen is it's the stuff of legend. I mean, it it, yeah. it, it does, that is bordering on miraculous. Would you agree? Yeah, it really is. I mean, I I I was I still run quite seriously, and I I you know I was doing some mile reps the other night, and the fastest one I did was about five minutes twenty. So that that's me doing one mile flat out and like you say you know sub three hour marathon is is pretty decent runner by by kind of non-professional standards and i was still a minute just on that one mile a minute slower than his average pace for the whole marathon so he's like to, to go at that two hour marathon pace you're basically even a serious kind of club runner like me is sprinting for like a hundred meters sprint yeah it's about the yeah. pace he's running the whole marathon and looking relaxed doing it as well no it's not he's not sprinting the whole marathon he can he can move at sprinting pace without sprinting <laughs> mm. just by being so efficient in his movement so relaxed so fluid and so yeah so so Elliot and, and lots of the Kenyans uh, like him and people I met in Kenya I met Elliot Kipchoge in Kenya and uh, I didn't run with him but I ran with a lot of his teammates people who'd run quite close to two hours and they just float, you know, they just, there's no effort at all. They, they're using the ground, they're using gravity, they're using elastic energy. And they're just, you're, you're putting in all the effort, you know, you're like, Whoa, and they're just <laughs> looking at you, gliding along next to you, like no effort at all. It's amazing. Yeah, it's almost as if they become a wheel as opposed to like a ham, hammer, which, yeah. would be, which, yeah. would be, which would be me. Yeah. What, what do we think about that attempt? I, I, you're always going to get the diehards come out and criticize stuff, aren't you? It, 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 I'm right in thinking it was kind of a bit of fun, but with also a sort of serious scientific attempt to break the two hour mark and, and use everything that, that you, that not kind of technically you would, well, technically you could in a marathon, you could wear, you can wear any trainers you like in a marathon. You can run. Well, you can't. Who, you can't actually <laughs> there we go you heard it here first folks on the bought the t-shirt so there are and it's partly because of this two-hour marathon that they brought in these new rules because basically they were nike were building up these these shoes with in effect kind of a very springy foam plate inside them that were getting more and more stacked to the point where it was starting to get a bit ridiculous well it you know, depending on your viewpoint, it's it's it is ridiculous, or it, or it was getting ridiculous. But either way, the the governing body put a limit on how high this how stacked this spring can be, and they also made a rule that you to run a marathon, your shoe. So this is not going to be a problem for uh, an amateur runner, but for a professional runner, their shoe has to be available on the on the mass market. The company can't be making a special shoe just for that runner, which is what was happening. Uh, there so Elliot did have a special shoe which was not available to anyone else so he he was actually breaking rules but but it wasn't like cheating because they were openly breaking the rules in that in that instance so they were saying look we're not this is not 
the world record. This is not a real race. We're just doing it to see if we can get under two hours. Uh, so, so yeah, so he, he did have assistance that you couldn't get in a normal race. I mean, <clears throat> they're all small things like normally in a race, you've got to pick up your own water bottle. Now that involves slowing down, grabbing it, picking it up. Now that only, you're only going to lose two or three seconds. Also, but there's a little bit of slowing down, speeding up, which takes a little bit of effort. But if you're doing that over the course of a marathon, that could add up to one or two minutes. Now, as they were trying to break, you know, the world record was at that point was about 203. So they were just trying to break three minutes off the record. So they were taking all these very small shortcuts, which wouldn't be allowed in a real race. So it became a slightly yeah, controversial thing from that point of view. And for me personally, I felt like marathon running. So since, so I went to Kenya in 2011. And since then, the world record had been broken in the men's marathon about four times, four or five times. And there was an incredible group of athletes who were really battling it out. And they'd got the marathon world record down almost every year it was being broken. And my problem with it, it was I felt like this is, was already one of the most exciting times of marathon running. You had these amazing runners going head to head. And it was like Nike said, no, that's, that's not interesting to us. We want to break two hours. because." And in a way, they had a point because although I was loving it, most of the world were oblivious to the fact that Kenyans were breaking the marathon world record. It, was, it didn't have the same kind of jazz mataz that, that Nike brought to this. <clears throat> sub breaking two they called it uh but i kind of felt like they were undermining what was already going on that there was already this amazing scene of these athletes doing incredible you know incredible performances mm -hmm. and then the second thing that bothered me is that it was being led by nike so like people often compared it to roger bannister breaking the four minute mile but that was roger bannister himself kind of instigating that he felt it was possible there were other athletes trying to do it it wasn't a shoe company coming in and saying forget all the other competition this is now all about us and we're going to break the two-hour record and so i did have a problem problem with it in a way but what i loved is that when it actually happened it was quite clear that this guy this kenyan runner was actually the star of the show that it wasn't about the shoes because you had all the other guys wearing the same shoes and they were dropping out dropping in dropping out and struggling to keep up and he was just so serene and so brilliant that i think he did kind of transcend the event in a way and and he did kind of become the star that he he deserved to be so so it all worked out well in the end i think <laughs> and i think when roger bannister crossed the line he and um, from what I remember, he seemed to look like he was just about to die of exhaustion. Yeah. This guy, am, am I pronounced, is it Elliot? Elliot, yeah, Kipchoge. Elliot Kipchoge, yeah. When, when he crossed the line, he, he wasn't even breaking a sweat. Yeah. He didn't, he just immediately started speaking to the camera as though it was, yeah. you thought, hang on, you've got more to give. I mean, it is partly, if you're, to be honest, you probably are going to be more in those, running a mile for even for, for me or you you're probably going to be more out of breath crossing the line running a mile than a marathon weirdly because you're you're running at a in a different way you're running in that oxygen depth because you're you're really pushing the pace whereas in a marathon you're running a a, a, a threshold pace where you're kind of you have to, to to run that distance otherwise you wouldn't make it uh but saying that he did 
look ridiculously easy afterwards. Yeah, I mean, he was <clears throat> he was running at a set pace, which was to break the two hour barrier. And you could see with about a mile to go, he, he was itching to speed up <laughs> and he was already running this incredible pace. And he was just smiling and looking around. And yeah, it was it was phenomenal. He's a phenomenal athlete. And, and a lot of it's about his mind as well. He's incredibly strong mentally because there's lots of runners in Kenya and Ethiopia just as talented and, and as much ability as him. But he combines it with a, an incredible mindset where he just kind of goes into this tunnel vision and he's just completely like he lives this amazingly simple lifestyle. So he still washes after training with a bucket of cold water. That's his shower. He cleans his own shoes. He's, he lives in this running camp where he shares a room with a very thin mattress, no pillow. You know, he, this guy's, you know, he's worth even in, in where, you know, in English money, he's worth millions, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, 20, 30 million pounds. Yeah, he lives like, I mean, it's very nice where they live. The lawn's very nicely kept. It's very clean, but it's incredibly simple. They eat beans and, and rice or just this thing, ugali, which is maize, flour, kind of cornmeal and, and uh, green leafy vegetables, cup of milk. Uh, very simple, very simple lifestyle. And I think he, you know, he would say this is what <clears throat> keeps him sharp. A lot of the great Kenyan runners, once they make it, you know, they start living more elaborate lifestyles and then they disappear where he's been around for so long, partly because he he maintains the the kind of monk like lifestyle. It's it's just beyond incredible. And, it, and there's a lesson there for all of us, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, simplicity. That's the amazing thing about the Kenyans is. That, and that's what I love about running in a way is that you know, in this modern world, we, in the West, we have all these advantages. We have all this, you know, these great ways of doing everything. But when it comes to running, actually, usually the simplest way, the, the kind of most rudimentary way is actually the best. And what I love, Nike then sent a team of kind of sports scientists to Kenya to analyze Elia Kipchoge's training. And then there's a film about this and they go to Kenya and they're like, we're going to analyze this training. We're going to marry this kind of raw talent as they saw it with with the sophistication of the you know nike scientists <clears throat> and so they watched him for a few weeks training and they realized no we we're not going to change anything <laughs> nothing you know with what he's doing is so beyond what we what we would have like come up with it's mm -hmm. just he's so in tune him and his coach were so in tune with each other the way they their whole day had this rhythm around the training and the resting and the sleeping they, they just could not find and they thought it would be dangerous to try and tinker with it because it was so perfect and, and this was all done instinctively they were just living a very simple life getting up training before so they do simple things like they get up and they run before they eat now that is kind of you know whoa latest science you know run run on a fasted state but they just do it because it feels right they know that feels good but then they won't do a hard session like that. So they know that as well. They know you do the easy runs faster. You do the hard sessions, you need fuel. So they have this kind of instinctive approach to how to train, which, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. And it all comes down to simplicity. You know, it's just this, their training sessions, their interval sessions are incredibly simple. They'll do like one minute hard, one minute easy, one minute hard, one minute easy, or two minutes hard, one minute easy. You know, they don't have complicated sessions where I run five minutes at this pace three minutes at this pace 
seven minutes. It's just easy. There's easy, medium, and hard. <laughs> Three paces. And uh, yeah, so anyway, I love the simplicity of it all. <clears throat> yes. We're, we're very um, deluded in, in the, well, I'll say, or I always say the West, but it's not, it's, it's become a global thing. I think we're very deluded about nutrition and diet. Um, when, I, when I was doing the joggle, the, the, the run in the UK, I'd wake up some mornings, I just had no food. And I had maybe uh, two inches of water left in the, in the water bladder. Yeah, and it was eighteen miles to the first cafe, and you, you just run, you, you just, yeah. just run. Yeah. The same as I did a an eighteen day fast, so I just drank water for eighteen days. Um, Not while running the juggle, man. Right? <laughs> no, no. But what I did do, just almost to sort of dispel this myth that when you do a marathon, you've got to be loaded up with with bandoliers of energy gels and. Yeah buckets of Lucasade and you've got to eat pasta for 75 years before you even consider putting your application just to dispel all I, I ran two miles having not eaten for 15 days and um I wouldn't recommend it because I was going to say how was it <laughs> well the the run was you you feel a bit lightheaded at that stage it, yeah. you, you know I have to be honest but it's easily achievable I mean I I think our ancestors must have had to cover vast distances in times of hardship or yeah. bad weather or drought or, or, or food scarcity and glaciers and all this sort of stuff. I think they would have had to have gone for weeks without possibly weeks covering enormous distance. So I, I think it's, if we're here today, this ability is in our DNA. Uh, yeah. We're, 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 it's probably getting bred out of us now by the way that society has become so much easier. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't recommend it simply because when your body's that depleted, you probably could do some serious, <laughs> serious damage. But I just wanted to show people you don't have to worry when you run. Yeah. You don't have to worry about your trainers, your energy gels. Am I wearing the right stuff? Have I got, you know, do I need a, a GPS? No, just comfortable pair of shoes out the front door. I never carry water when I run. If I'm going to run that far, I just take my bank card <laughs> and I stop at a petrol station and grab yeah. a bottle bottle of water. I always drink sparkling water for some reason. Yeah, then you've got the full range of choice of anything you feel like at that moment, haven't you? Yes. You've got your bank card. Including a taxi. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I went to watch some, like, kids' races in Kenya, and, they, you know, the kids were all running barefoot, but there was one race in particular, the, the junior women's race, and the, the girl who won was kind of running in her Sunday best dress. And, like, they were quite serious athletes. She actually got signed up by Nike after the race. So they, it, was a, it was a big, high-level competition, but she just turned up, didn't have any running gear, ran in this dress and, and won the race, and... Uh, Looked quite looked quite strange because all the other athletes were in running gear and she was wearing this really elaborate Sunday best dress that just trounced them all. <laughs> I worked in Mozambique for six months and um, taught in a street children's school. And when we have football matches, the guys would rock up, and if the ones that were lucky enough to have footwear would take one shoe off and give it to their mate, so the whole team just had one shoe so if you're a, 
a, a striker with your right foot, you 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 were lucky if you got the right, but maybe you didn't. You just got the left. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to mention uh, to mention that Darren and the when I first started doing half marathons, oh, probably over thirty years ago now people would rock up wearing jeans mm. and 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 like their office office shoes and you you you'd, you'd not not a lot of people but you'd see yeah. it was just the science of running wasn't really there back then yeah. now when you go to your local half marathon it's usually um won by somebody from from africa uh how is that are they trying to get their kind they're trying to build their build their careers and their reputations yeah i mean well i yeah i mean there's <clears throat> so that i mean there are races in kenya obviously but one thing they're they're incredibly uh competitive as you can imagine <laughs> so you turn up things you turn up at like i don't know the great south run or something or or even a smaller race like you know uh, i know the bristol half marathon although then there's 20,000 people in the race if you're a Kenyan really there's like two or three people in that race who yeah. might give you a risk when you turn up a race in Kenya and there's 500 people in that race they can all beat you like potentially so you know it so 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 to win a race in Kenya is pretty hard but a lot of them are posting pretty good times they're running they're training well they're you know even if they come 50th in a race in Kenya they're not going to win any money but they might get picked up by a manager who says well you, you came top 50 that's pretty good let's send you to Bristol, for example, let's send you to the Bristol half marathon. And so then, you know, if you win a race like the Bristol half marathon or even come top five, you probably win some money. So there are two things. So A, they're trying to win some money to bring back home to kind of feed the families. And then, I mean, the money can be quite good. I, a friend of mine, I managed to get him over to run the Edinburgh uh, marathon and he came second and he bought a piece of land back in Kenya with that. And he, he's building a little house on it. So, I mean, I think he won like two and a half thousand pounds or something, but that is, that is a big, it's a lot more money in Kenya. So that's one thing they're trying to do. The other thing is post fast times because it's hard to post a fast time in Kenya because either it's, if it's a low altitude, it's very hot. And if it's a high altitude, it's hard to post fast times. But to get into these big races, you need fast time. So if you, like if you're a Kenyan guy in, in Kenya, you're, you, you know, 64 minutes, for example, for a half marathon is, is very good in Kenya. Uh, but then you could come to Bristol and run 60 minutes. Now, 60 minutes is good globally. So then, you know, then the Amsterdam marathon, for example, which is a big one, you know, your manager can go, oh, this guy ran 60 minutes in Bristol. You know, maybe you should try him in the Amsterdam marathon. And they obviously they, they have a lot of people trying to get into their races, but there's a lot of big city races, marathons and half marathons all over the world. And so you kind of progress up the ladder and, and kind of the London is one of the biggest, the London marathons, one of the biggest races. So you get the top Kenyan stars and Ethiopian stars have kind of progressed through races like Bristol, then to Amsterdam, and they end up somewhere like London or New York. And, and so that's the dream is to kind of make it on that progression. But a lot of them get, you know, the winning the Bristol, the Great South Run or the Bristol Half Marathon, or I don't know, the, the Prague Half Marathon or something is, is the level they get to. But if they win three or four of those races in, in a year or in a couple of years, they're kind of still set up for life really back in Kenya. So the incentives are pretty high. 
uh, for them to find the races. And, and it's all done through managers. And most of the managers are Europeans uh, or Americans. There are actually very few Kenyan managers. It's quite tricky with the visas and everything because the managers have to travel around a lot as well. So, so yeah, there's, so there's European, I think they're all men actually. I was going to say men and then almost check myself, but I think they are all men, all the managers. So you've got these European men living in Iten or at least going there quite regularly to, they have their scouts on the ground and then signing up anyone who looks like they've got potential and then getting them over to Europe or America or even South America and Asia. You know, there are races everywhere except Kenya's like the only place where it's really hard to, A, hard to win and hard to get a fast time. So they've got it, the big challenge is to, is to get abroad and, and race anywhere really. Is. And did I, if my memory serves correctly from your wonderful book, um, was our sort of synopsis um, the reason these guys and girls run so well was a combination of running from from childhood, so they'd run run to school, for example. Yeah. Um, good style, as in they'd run. They used to running barefoot from a young age, so they had good form. Yeah. Um, a simple simple new nutrition, or the yeah. right nutrition, should I should I say? And then and then of course so I suppose there's biological factors. Um, being, being born as an African or a, a Kenyan in this case. Um, and then of course there's the altitude which must tune the, tune the body or the blood cells to a, a higher level. Was, was I right in thinking that? Yeah, so they're all, they're all factors. Uh, and then almost one of the biggest ones is what we were just talking about in the fact that the incentives are so high. So for, you think for British, a British guy in, in his early twenties, you know, if, he, if he's going to train hard enough to compete with the Kenyans and potentially win the Bristol Half Marathon, and it's it's possible, you know, and it's going to be a lot of dedication, a lot of training, a lot of time, completely, like, you have to give his life over to it 100% if you're going to compete with these Kenyans. And you win two and a half thousand pounds, you know. It's like, God, is it worth it, you know. And it's not, and, and it's hard to build a life on that. So you probably need to then get a part-time job, then that affects your training, so it, it's very difficult where well, the fact that the money is worth so much more to the Kenyans means it's so much easier for them to, and they've got so much other, fewer other options. So this, this young British guy, theoretical British guy may have done well at school. So may have the option to go to university may think, God, you know, I want to go out with my friends. If I just got a job, I'd have some money. We could go out. You know, there's so many other options for him where this Kenyan guy, his other option, if he doesn't go for the running is probably to, basically be a subsistence farmer digging the soil just to and you know make enough food to eat basically and it's a hard life whereas if he can put everything into this training so the incentive to totally focus everything on his training in the hope of winning two and a half thousand pounds is huge so that the incentives are completely skewed in their favor and also the motivation and and the and the fact that there's so much more there's so much fewer other alternatives for them. It's the only show in town. That's why everybody in Kenya is running. There's, you know, there's, there's no people. There was a guy trying to set up a cycling team in a tent and he, cause he figured, well, if you can run, you can cycle like long distance. So you've got the, you've got the endurance, but they were like, what, 
recycling no we don't we don't cycle. we're runners we're running everyone look at that guy he just won that massive car that guy you know he's got a big house that guy's built a supermarket that guy's built a school i want to be like you know there's, there's role models everywhere there's there's kind of examples of success all around them but all in running nothing else so running is is like the only show in town so everybody is focused on running and and also that kind of creates this real uh special place to run as well because everybody's coming there to run and so you get up in the morning and everybody's running and so you know you don't have to think oh should i go for a run today it's people are kind of if you don't run if you didn't go for a run today people want to know why it's not like here where people say you know you run every day well why do you run every day what's what's wrong with you there it's like you don't run every day what's wrong with you you know it's like mm -hmm. everything's flipped on its head so and there's inspiration everywhere there's you know you're out running and and the guy who won the london marathon comes by and you just run along next to him and he chats to you and tells you yeah you know you can do it you keep training and you go wow it's amazing and so it's just such a different atmosphere almost to the point where i say in the book it's almost to the point when you're there you think how did anyone likes for example paula radcliffe who broke the world record in the marathon like living in like bedford in middle of england with like i know she did have a very good uh, kind of group there actually interestingly enough and i think that's important i think having people to train with it's very very rare that someone comes completely out of nowhere so even when you dig down to paula reckless story she was a uh, part of a very strong group of runners as a junior in her hometown who all trained together and were friends together. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of, you kind of think, how does anyone compete with this? I mean, it's just such a febrile, fertile scene for running, to produce running. I mean, it's just like, yeah. And then it's like the New Zealand for rugby or, you know, India for cricket and Brazil for football, you know, it's just, but it's kind of even more intense because it's, it's just- I in thought it was, um, I thought it was England for football. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> Brazilians are the footballers. I mean, yeah. I mean, England's good as well, but <laughs> but it's true though. If you England want to be a footballer, England are going to be good one day. But but even joking aside, if you you know in this country, if you've got real talent as a footballer, that's that's much more likely to be nurtured than talent as a runner because mm. you know unless you're going to become Olympic champion in running, there's not really much of a career path there. Whereas you know, if you're good at football, even if you end up in the second tier, so you're only in the top 500 footballers in the country, you're you're still that's still a pretty great, pretty great life, and well well you know well paid and everything else. So. Is it to their detriment then? I mean, do, it, it it sounds like it could be a case of care for what you wish for. This enormous amount of money to somebody who who, who comes from a, a culture where it's just really not i mean it's not even here but um i mean does it lead to sort of alcoholism or or, or substance yeah, misuse and... it's a really good question and there's uh i think it used to a lot more i think there were a lot more problems in the past when when they first started earning money and they realized people realized we've got to educate people about this uh i guess the also the more people who went off the rails uh acted as a kind of warning to young guys coming through or oh, i don't want to end up like him uh, so there have been i mean yeah like like any any young person like uh, you know you get stories in here don't you footballers who've got too much money and and 
and particularly in the past doesn't seem quite as common now but you know people like Georgie Best is the is the classic example mm. of people who kind of squander that talent and it, it definitely happens in Kenya there was a guy Sami Wanjiru who who won the Olympic marathon in 2008 in Beijing he was 23 he broke he'd already broken three world records he won the Olympic gold medal 23 a few months later he was dead so he got he got into all sorts of trouble in the bars and got in with the Kenyan mafia and the whole thing went it's like a spiraling disaster movie so those things do happen but also Kenya is quite interesting in that the whole Kenyan system is not funded by anything other than the runners so the I mean the sponsors are obviously funding the top runners but there's a very that's a handful of the runners yet there's like I said, there's like in this one town, there's 2000 runners and there are lots of other towns as well. So what's supporting all these runners? Where's that money coming from? And it's actually coming from a lot of the big guys, the, the successful runners are supporting the younger runners and they become kind of, if, if they take it on board and with the right spirit, they become kind of pillars of the, of the community, the, the, the successful runners. And they, a lot of them build schools, build hospitals. They, they tend to build petrol stations as well for some reason <laughs> business you know business that that lasts that that is going to provide for them after they run but then they also support the other athletes so you might get one successful athlete who has a team of about 20 other athletes who he looks after and they they all train together they work in for him it's useful as well because he has all these athletes who will train when he wants to train will do what he wants to do the sessions he wants to do leading up to the races he's doing but at the same time he's providing them with running gear uh, food every day, uh, transport to and from training, all sorts of things like that. So, so the, for, there, there are examples of people who go off the rails and, and completely lose it. But then there are, there's quite an amazing, the, the Kenyan motto is Harambe, which means all pull together. And there's a real sense of a Harambe in the, in the running community in Kenya, where they all, you know, they all help each other out. And it's interesting because quite a few of them go to Japan uh and there's uh there's a whole world of professional running in japan and they sign up the kenyan runners and they did this study in japan where they were realizing the kenyan runners were sending most of their money home and they thought oh we need to educate them we need to teach them that running career is short and so they need to keep that money and they need to invest it not send it back to kenya to all the to all the neighbors and the and the family and the other runners but the kenyans weren't doing that because they were stupid they were doing that because that's how it works because that's when they were up and coming that's how they managed to keep training and there's this kind of feeder system where the people who are successful feed down to the people they call them the up and coming runners the up and coming runners get a lot of support what's tricky is then if you then get through your career and you don't make it there's a kind of gray area black a kind of black blind spot there where the athletes who haven't made any success have trained 10 10, 12 years, come out the other end, haven't made anything for themselves. Now, nobody's going to support those guys because they're trying to support the young guys, young guys and girls. And so there is there is a kind of sad side to the Kenyan story, which is the, the ones who, and, that, and it's a lot as well. It it's, could be over half of the runners train their whole, you know, well, their whole lives, but like 10, 15 years, probably capable of running, you know, winning big races in other countries but just never get the opportunity never quite do well enough to impress a manager never quite run the time they needed to 
or they get sent to there's some unscrupulous managers who basically send people off to races but then don't give them the prize money i mean you know and then so they don't get anything and so there's definitely a problem there but that's not really the question you asked but it, it is interesting there, there needs to be there's no kind of safety net for those people and then they go back with their tail between their legs back to their villages having been away for 10 15 years and come back empty-handed and it's it's not it's not a good way you know then they get back to the farm but you know they're kind of wasted all those years and they've been supported as well so you know they feel bad they feel useless you know they no one wants to marry them you know it's it's a it's a it's a bad system in a way from that point of view but yeah so so it's a tricky it's tricky basically is what i'm yeah, saying so I, I i i can i can picture it it's um yeah sorry i'll just i'm just in my mind is i had a friend from uh malawi so a little way from kenya but it's a very different attitude there to um can we say promiscuity yeah and my friend because he'd studied with me in 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 where well, we studied in norway to become um development instructors and then we drove to india and back together and when a, 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 a another friend of ours went to visit to try to find him in malawi he died of aids and I just conjured up this picture of him coming back from the sort of rich West being the, the, the returning hero yeah. to his small village and then <laughs> sleeping with every woman around and, and yeah. then um, suffering the, the, you know, the sad consequence, but. Yeah, it can, it can disrupt, can disrupt the, the ecosystem in a way when I think it, when Kenya and the running, it's different It might And I think that's what I say it was worse before. But I think now it's kind of like the whole society has has kind of found its 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 place with it. So there's so many of them. It's not like this is one guy comes back and he's the you know he he's like the king. He's like another one. We've seen you before. You know we've had we've had the conquering heroes come back, and so we we can we can deal with it. But uh, yeah, I think especially if someone goes back to a remote village, not not everybody is from this area in Kenya where the running is more common. If the, someone's from a more uh another part of kenya where running is less common and they do well and they go back there yeah then the whole ecosystem around how their society works can can be disrupted and it's not always good for someone to win a lot of money or, or travel abroad and change change their mindset and yeah so it's, it's tricky but i think kenya's got to a point now with the running community at least where it's it's like its own it's its own like ecosystem it just works uh so which because I, I was asked a few times whether I would go and help runners in other countries. And I, I kind of felt like, well, there, there's that risk. There's that risk that you're disrupting, you know, something that you don't really understand. Where in Kenya, it's already there. It's already there's this system is already there. I'm just going in, you know, and helping a couple of runners run. But that's what everyone, that's what this society is based on. It's been built up around this understanding that guys are going to go off and come back with money. <laughs> that's what's supporting it. That's what it's built on. So it's uh, it's a slightly different scenario in a way. Yes. How how is the transition then for for these runners who've obviously grown up barefoot or for the most part barefoot? I'm guessing that then have to put on a Nike or a, or an Adidas uh, 
training sh shoe is, is there like a favored brand is it is do they go for the low the the what is it the what do you call it low heel or whatever it's yeah no i mean kenya's basically you know if someone's going to give them a pair of shoes they'll take them you know and especially if a company is going to pay them to wear them they, they don't they don't care what brand it is really i mean it's you know if you're if you're offered money to wear some shoes uh, and you're a poor kenyan guy yeah you, you're you don't you're not going to go oh, actually i prefer nike then then you know yeah um, i i so. gave a pair of um uh nikes actually i think they were just running shoes they were a size too small for me so i i get really annoyed about things like that so i gave them to one of my students and i think they're about three sizes too small for him right. every day he'd rock up with these you know he's so proud of these shoes yeah. and you could see that his toes were were curled up in the end and uh, yeah, yeah there's a kind of real desire to i think being barefoot is seen as kind of poverty and unsuccessful and you know someone who's successful wears shoes in their mind so there's a real desire to put shoes on and and like you say even if they're three sizes too small it, it kind of feels like you've moved up a level somehow if you've got shoes on but there is a whole kind of science and, and you've read born to run and there's a whole there's there's a whole kind of idea that you know they might be better off not wearing the shoes and and the kenyan athletes themselves find this quite difficult to talk about because they'll tell you all day long about how running barefoot as children made them such good runners and then you say well why why not just stay barefoot and they're like ah oh, what no we wouldn't do that that's a silly idea well like, why not and like well because because you know you have to have shoes on they, there's no real reason why they need to but and you can uh, you can see they don't want to turn up when a baby bikeli bikila uh, turned up at the olympics barefoot in 1960 yeah, everyone was laughing at him i mean it, it is you know we for us maybe not as much but if if a guy turned up at a race even a local race in barefoot you think oh, he's a bit of an oddball you know what's he doing Got, you know there is a kind of stigma attached to to being barefoot and for the kenyans it's even worse the, uh, the, the chap in the olympics won didn't he yeah he broke the world record yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah he won and broke the world record uh so i mean i'm not saying you you should wear run barefoot but definitely rather than choose three sizes too small you might might be better barefoot and and there is this so yeah, like you say there is a transition to wearing shoes and and they do often find i remember faith kip Yeager and i spoke to her and she won the world junior cross country championships barefoot mm -hmm. and then i spoke to her and she tried some shoes on she said i didn't like them i didn't like them i didn't want to run in them she's now olympic she won the 1500 meters at the rio olympics so gold medal so she's now olympic champion but she runs in shoes now so i guess she had to go she told me the first time she wore them she didn't like them and that was the time i spoke to her she she'd only ever tried a pair of shoes on but now she runs in them and I guess you just have to get used to them. But, and, and these, you know, these new Nike shoes with the, the big bouncy foam are definitely helping them run faster. Uh, so there are some advantages to wearing shoes as well as being advantages to being barefoot. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, they, they see it as a necessary transition to, to move away from being barefoot, even though, you know, there was a nice story the other day in South Africa. Some guy had uh, got a lot of criticism because he broke a record wearing these new shoes. Uh, and and a lot of people are doing that. A lot of people are running great times. Everyone goes, oh, it's because you you're wearing the fancy shoes. 
So he decided to run next race with no shoes on, just in bare feet. And he, he broke his record again. So, you know, it, it it's, it's a tricky subject. There's, you know, he, if you, you need strong feet to run barefoot. I mean, I can't just go out and run barefoot. My feet are just too soft and too, you know, I've lived too easy a life. You know, you have to walk around outside for a lot, a lot of time barefoot. You, you can you can toughen them up if you want, but you've got to spend a lot of your time barefoot. I, I, mean, go I, to the I shop tried barefoot. it, Darren and I, I, I mm. I'm going to say here and now for our friends at home. So when Born to Run came on the market, wonderful book by Christopher McDougall suddenly people's paradigm shifted to hang on maybe wearing these nikes or nikes whatever your preferred um term is um maybe having these big thick bouncy heels and landing on your heels isn't actually in line with our human um biology and our and our suspension and so the thinking went to landing on the forefront and going barefoot if possible to get your your style uh, perfected as as you would as a child when a child walks barefoot they don't need shoes and that kind of stuff right well when I um, read Born to Run I just immediately kicked my shoes off I ran around the local field and the I, I just instantly fell in love with it I, I running along the beach barefoot is just an incredible experience and I started to run around the streets of my city. I think 12, um, I think eight miles was the furthest I, I, I ran. And the problem isn't the things that people think like, oh, what if you tread on a nail or some dog muck? Or is you, you don't do that because you don't do that anyway when you, when, yeah. when you walk. That isn't the problem. Okay. The problem is, is your feet can't toughen up enough quick. Yeah. So rather than my feet get harder and my running get better, my feet got more painful to the point where I started to develop, um, I think they're called bursitis, they're little cysts yeah, yeah. Uh, on, on the bony parts of your, your foot. You get these little sacs of fluid where your body's trying to protect itself. And the bottom of my feet became so sore as if someone had taken sandpaper to them. And then the, to, the, the final um, insult to injury was I've been running on the track because I found it a lot easier to run barefoot on the track, a lot less painful. And I think the compression on my spine, even though I changed my running style to the forefoot strike by this, by this stage, um, it put my back out. And that as anyone who knows my story knows that that delayed my joggle, the, the UK run for two years and I was in chronic pain for for over a year of that. I was on opiates for two years, um, or the best part of two two years. And sadly, you kind of have to join that argument that we're we're kind of not right, for, you know, unless you've done it for a lifetime. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, we we have basically our feet have got to the point where they. Yeah, they're, they're not, it's not an easy thing to do. It is possible, though. I have a friend who lives in uh, Star Cross. You'll know Star Cross. Uh, Joe Kelly, he, he runs everywhere barefoot. And he, he started a few years ago. He doesn't run that often, but he does everything barefoot. And he, and he can, so he, he's actually run the Dartmoor Discovery uh, Ultramarathon uh, barefoot, even though he's not a 
big runner. He can just he can just do it. But it's taken him years and years and years. Uh, and yeah, like I I'm just not someone who has that commit. You have to be fully committed to the the whole idea of it. You know, I think walk around barefoot the whole time. It's, it's as big a lifestyle change as say having to learn to live in a wheelchair. Or, or yeah. sorry, it's probably a bit rude, but I mean, I used to be walking through town with my partner. And I'd say, hang on, hang on a minute. And I'd take my flip-flops off in the summer. And then, yeah. and it's a big thing. And I'm, I'm not the sort of person that I don't care what other people think. Whereas I know a lot of people probably do. Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't an issue, but I could see how it's quite probably a big thing for a lot of people. Yeah. And you can get shoes that, like you get minimalist shoes, which are kind of like people who are really into Barefoot would say it's not the same, and and there are lots of, you know, you you're not feeling the ground with every nerve ending in the same way. But at the same time, if you're not, you know, if you haven't been brought up in Kenya, running around your whole childhood barefoot, and you don't want to go through what you went through, then there are the but you still love the idea of of a natural landing and and the whole minimal idea of the whole concept of barefoot running. These minimal shoes can help there's you know lots of companies do them viva barefoot is, is a great company but yeah. they uh they're still it's still our bodies are still the way we run is still if, like we've d- developed our way of running through wearing shoes and so to change your running form is still a very complicated and and complex and, and dangerous thing to do and you can still there's there's endless stories of people who start running in the barefoot style with the minimal shoes and get Achilles problems, calf problems. You, you know, you just, uh, it, it's a, it's a huge process and takes a lot of commitment. It is possible. And I feel like I've been through that and I've done it, but I did get, I had quite a few years of Achilles problems. Yeah. You have to basically reteach your body how to move, re show your body, not just how to land on its forefoot, but to move in many different ways. It's whole range of movement that's been compromised in a way by by wearing shoes all these years so it's it's and then you think well if someone's running twice a week and they're enjoying it you know let's not mess with that by telling them oh they should be wearing you know minimal shoes or should not be wearing shoes because you the chance that you could cause more problems than 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 you than you solve but saying that for a kenyan it would be much easier because they can well up to a certain point then after they've been running in shoes for five or six years and they're just like we are their shoes their feet become softer but yeah there's also something you can't get away from as you get older especially if you don't hydrate um as well as you should do which i have to confess not 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 to i probably drink far too much tea but that's that the your the discs in your spine um they kind of harden as they dehydrate over oh, as your of your. This is what the the doctors were explaining when my back was bad. Uh-huh. Is it as you get older, it's almost like they harden, so they go from the kind of jelly like state to a, a more solidified um, state. I, I'm not sure if that's some sort of protection mechanism as you get older, but I think you become more prone to prolapse discs and, and and that sort of thing I, I might I might might be wrong there what 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 do we think um Adara and and about uh, diet then because I'm I'm very happy to be sort of like 98 
95% plant-based now, probably 95% plant-based now, hasn't affected my running in any way whatsoever, except to make it me a much better runner. <laughs> well, I'm very big on body's alkalinity. I've been doing that for making sure that my pH balance is right for about 17 years now. And when I first started, I went from being a runner that was always exhausted in that first quarter of a mile. I just couldn't, it, it just really had to fight through the first quarter of a mile of a run to get into my flow and get my breathing and then feel, ah, oh, this is, this is fine now. Yeah. A bit like the running for a bus sort of feeling. And um, when I became alkaline, that, that just goes and you just, you go off like a rocket. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, I'm not, I'm, yeah, I kind of always struggle a little bit with the, the dietary question because, so I, I was brought up vegetarian, so I've never eaten meat in my life and, and can't really get my head around ever one trying, trying it. So I'm kind of, so the whole idea of like the paleo diet where you eat lots of meat, I just, I can't even go there. I don't even want to go there. So, and then the other diet is a kind of diet that I feel like my body's adapted to anyway, which is lots of pulses and, and vegetables and, you know, the, the kind of vegan vegetarian diet. We didn't drink milk, we didn't have eggs. So it's, we do, we do have cheese and, and yogurt. So, so I'm not fully vegan, but I'm probably like you, but I, but I always have been since I was born. So I don't feel like I'm a good example because maybe my body's adapted to uh, it. Okay. Can we, can I ask how old you are? Uh, 47 okay yeah but, well, you, you you you're looking well on it yeah still got my hair <laughs> yeah well it's not it's not it's not as gray as mine uh but what's interesting is the kenyan diet i guess uh and they uh it is interesting so they're not because of any particular reason they just eat what they've always eaten because they seem to be able to run fast on it and they don't want to change it so they have this thing called ugali which is basically maize flour and water, which they swear by because it's partly because they look around, what are we doing that no one else is doing? Oh, we eat ugali, no one else eats ugali. So that must be our secret. So they eat a lot of ugali and eat it with this thing, which is basically stewed kale, which they, every Kenyan training camp has a kale patch. So they're growing the kale themselves. So it's fresh, it's organic. They, they stew it up and they have it with maize flour. So that, they have that every day, that's a daily meal. And then the rest of the time they're eating beans and rice, potatoes, avocados. Uh, they do eat, they do for some reason like uh, just dry bread. They eat dry bread for breakfast and then lots of tea. And what's interesting about the tea is they have a lot of milk and sugar in it. So I guess when you look at their diet, it's not that high in sugar and fat. And so I guess that's where they're getting their sugar and fat from is the milky tea. Mm. Uh, they put a lot of milk and a lot of sugar in their tea and that's it so it's basically vegetarian uh, and almost vegan apart from the milk except then they they do eat meat they're not vegetarian or vegan so they eat meat in the very fancy training camps they might eat it even once a week but that's that's super fancy most of them will eat it about once a month and they will uh, and then and then it's really safe for weddings and funerals and big occasions that's when because most people are eating the goat that they've got in the garden. So, you know, they're not going to just kill it every week. <laughs> that's for the special, that's for when their son gets married or whatever, you know? So, uh, and, and I have quite a funny story because I went to visit one of the young guys I was helping to run, run a marathon. And 
I was going to be the special guest in this. He lived in a really remote village. So it was quite a big deal that I was coming. And uh, my friend Godfrey, a Kenyan guy, told me he, he was laughing. He said, oh, I, I told him you were vegetarian. He said he was so happy. He didn't have to kill his goat. <laughs> so there, you know, and it was lucky I told him because if I told, hadn't told him I was vegetarian, I turned out and he had killed his one goat for me. That would have been very awkward. But yeah, so so that were, so you know the, the so the meat eating is, is quite low. Obviously, the Kenyans haven't decided this is the best diet. This is why we're eating it. They just eat it because that's the diet that's available to them, and that's what they ate growing up. That's what all the other runners are eating. It's a kind of well, this is working. Let's not mess with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is interesting that they're eating fairly low protein diet. The protein really occasional meat. Well, the beans and rice, I guess, has got some protein. Uh, and then the milk, but it's not high protein. It's, it's a very high carbohydrate diet, uh, mostly vegetarian, mostly vegan. So mm. it's, it's interesting. Definitely can work. Definitely, you know, you can run sprinting pace for a marathon <laughs> and look easy on it. So uh, yes. yeah, I think it's definitely possible. Uh, Darren, Ann, we've had the um, the ultra running. Let's call it a phenomenon. Don't mm -hmm. don't um, we're now seeing the super, the ultra ultras, which is um, rate any races up to, well, races up to and, and even over 300 miles. Right. What, what do you think's next for running? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, th I think, I mean, I, so I, I, I don't know if you know, I wrote, I wrote after the Kenyan book, I wrote two more books. So I've written a book about running in Japan and I've written a book about ultra running. Uh, and so I think ultra running is still growing hugely. And, and, you know, I think I still feel that's, that's on the up and that's becoming more popular and more uh, people are becoming more aware of it. And the, and the people in the sport are becoming bigger and bigger stars. Uh, beyond that, I don't know. I mean, I, who knows? Who knows? I mean, it's quite interesting. You think 50 years ago, <clears throat> kind of the centerpiece of running was track running track running now almost seems like a kind of niche part of the sport you know who's running track it's all marathons and ultra marathons now maybe trail running and so i don't know i mean I, I quite quite used to like track running many years ago but i guess it is it's a it's a quite a difficult thing to get everyone involved in yeah i don't know is the answer i'm intrigued to find out but yeah there's uh there's ultra running there's marathons Ultra, ultra running. I hadn't heard that expression though, but yeah, I know what you mean. The races just seem to get, there's always someone doing something crazier, right? You hear about the Bar the Barclay marathons. Do you hear about that race? Yes, I've seen a couple of the wonderful YouTube videos on it. I couldn't work out for the life of me what the hell was go going on, especially when they're ripping pages out of books and stuff. But I did gather that it's an um, incredibly traditional and and um uh what's the word extrovert um eccentric kind yeah. of event it's very difficult i mean i think this they've just had it and, and nobody nobody finished the race i think that's like the third or fourth year in a row now nobody has finished the race so that's quite that's quite a tough race if nobody's finishing it <laughs> I try well i ran 200 miles at christmas i i came up with this idea inspired by a friend of mine called James English, who, who gave up his, his Christmas to live homeless on the streets of Glasgow. Wow. And, and he made a wonderful documentary about it. 
Um, and so uh, in, in honor of James, because he's a great guy, I decided to run, give up my Christmas to run 200 miles. And I started on the 23rd of December or the 22nd. And I ran around my local running track. They very kindly gave me permission and they gave me their club club room and stuff. It was great. And I had this kind of crazy notion, if I could do it in two days, then, I, then I'll get home for Christmas. <laughs> I called it running home for Christmas. And we were raising money for veterans, um, mental, uh, veterans mental health charity. So you just ran around the track for 200 miles. Yeah, well, that was the idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm a great believer when I do my adventures in the world, I always have a plan B right. that isn't going to screw up the plan A sort of thing. So yeah. basically, I try to make them infallible. Yeah. Um, and in this case, after I'd run about the first marathon, my body hurt so much. I came down with so many all the injuries that I've avoided over the years. So the torn hand, the ripped hamstring, torn calf muscle, um, Achilles tendonitis in my left ankle so bad, it was as if it had taken over the whole of that part of my foot, as if it had gone solid. It, it was very strange stuff. When you think, um, when you think when I ran the length of the country, the worst thing I had there was a shin splint, which was really unpleasant and incredibly painful. But other than that, the rest of it was, it was fairly easy, easy, easy running. Was it like an art, you know, one of the all weather tracks, the red all weather track? Yes, it was. And it was, yeah. it was brand new as well. So it was additionally springy. Yeah. Yeah. Quite springy. Yeah. And I, I think, that I was kind of losing, um, I suppose, energy to the springiness in, yeah. in, in a way. But we, we did the 200 miles. Um, the track closed on Christmas Eve, I think it was. So I then had to go on the road and I just headed out to Dartmoor. Ended up running around Burrator <laughs> during that really bad storm that hit on the 27th. <laughs> and very kindly, a, a fellow fellow former marine came to support me and this is the great thing about running and, and doing life coaching is he hadn't run for, for for years and years due to debilitating illness and I was like forget that come having not run for 15 years um, and believing he couldn't we just not we banged out a 15 miler just a, a, immediately and he was just a wonderful man by the way Mike, hello, if you're watching. Um, and he was over the moon, of, 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 you know, obviously. And I'm trying to nudge him to, to go the plant-based route. Um, but it was that bad. We had to keep listening out for the branches cracking overhead. Wow. And when you heard a crack would stop and the branch would crash down in the, in, in, in the road at Burrito in front of us, we'd, we'd hop over it and then continue on. The rain was horizontal and the final again insult to injury was I ended up running along the Leet at Yelverton the old Drake's Leet and quarter mile from the end it was seven o'clock on the morning of the 27th so it taken me I think about five days to, to, um, to do I stepped in a cow pat or a horse pat and instinctively I went 
I lift, I, I just lifted my foot in, as if you'd stopped in dogma, you know, <laughs> stepped in dogma or something. And that motion after five days of, of running, was it 60 miles a day, tore my uh, calf. I, I, I could literally felt it snap, the, the muscle snapping. And I was so, I was so resigned to the pain by that. I just ignored, I just kept running. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I do wonder what's next. A 300 miler, I mean, a 200 miler made me struggle. So yeah. the professionals would do that in, in a day and a half. Took me five days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those ultra runners are <coughs> quite phenomenal. I, I did a, I didn't do anything that far, but I did a, couple of hundred mile races and uh yeah i was like 20 hours behind the behind the winner i was like how can they be that far ahead you know i feel like i've been doing my best how can they be <laughs> that far ahead they've been to bed they've had they've been had food been to bed got up had breakfast and i'm still out here running <laughs> and can we promote your the, the way of the runner.com Yep. So the way of the runner.com is, is my running camps, most of which are in Dartmoor uh, or, or in South Devon. Anyway, uh, I do a writing and running weekend with uh, the author Richard Asquith uh, and me. So he wrote a brilliant book called Feet in the Clouds. About I've read it. Yes. Yeah. About the um, trail running up, up north. What do you, what do you call it? The fell running, fell, fell running. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so me, me and him do a writing and running weekend. Then we do a couple of running camps uh, in in Dartmoor. Uh, and I also have a podcast as well called The Way of the Runner, The Way of the Runner podcast. So interview all sorts of people on there. So yes. I get to be on the other side of the screen. <laughs> yes. Can I come on as a guest? I'd love to chat to you about, about yeah. run it, running. <laughs> we could just re reuse this one. We could like... <laughs> yes. Best. And so what is it that, you know, why do people love running? Why will people come to a, write, a running and writer's camp? What, what is it about this sport that, that it really gets some of us that we're never going to give it up, and, you know, until yeah. we're, they're going to have to put us in the ground first? Yeah, I mean, I guess you get that real feeling of sense of well-being after you run, don't you? I mean, I always think you, when I'm not sure I want to go for a run, I just remind myself how good I feel afterwards and you just you know you, you and often during the run as well but often it's weird before the run it's just like oh and you know it takes effort it takes energy like oh do i really want to do this once you get going once you get into your stride i think it's a really natural thing you know running is a really we are as that book born to run goes on we are we are built as humans we're not really built to cycle or even we can swim but it's not our speciality but running is one of the things we're really good at. I mean, in the animal kingdom, we're not that good at sprinting compared to all the four-legged animals, but actually in long distance running, we're one of the best uh, species on the planet. So I think we, it just feels like we're doing something we were designed to do. And then the, the running camps, I guess a lot of people, you know, maybe they live in a house where no one else runs and they don't have many running friends. So it's really nice to spend a whole weekend with other people who really appreciate running and you just talk running you just go for runs together everyone everyone gets you you know we, we get each other so so that's fun but yeah i think it's just it's a real human primal human thing to do is to run and i think we like that yes brilliant well 
um, I have to say, this has probably been one of the most enjoyable um, podcasts I've done. I think we've, I think I've got two hundred, was it four hundred videos? I think now on um, wow, on the, some of them are clips, but but yeah, uh, yeah it, you can see that I I I think I'll always love this sport. Yeah, and to speak to an absolute legend um, and someone who's, I mean, you, you must get a lot of praise for your writing i mean i get it from my sort of books but it it's i mean i i, I owe you a debt of gratitude and we we've only just met today so yes thank you oh that's okay not at all yeah i mean people it seems to strike a chord of you i think people know that why they love running but they find it difficult sometimes to put it into words so when they read something that kind of expresses what they're feeling i guess it 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 strikes a chord so people enjoy it mm. yeah Darren Ann, thank you ever so much. Um, I hope we can chat at some point again in the in, yeah. in the future. Thank you, Chris. Been um, been very enjoyable. What I'll do, I'll put you. I can put your social media links below the video. Should anybody want to follow you or, or, or get in contact, the um, the actual website links. We've just come up with a major problem on the podcast. All right. As we speak, I've just been banned from YouTube for seven days. Okay. Because because one of my guests' websites, their security certificate faltered. Right. Um, and as such, YouTube come and blame me for it. Oh, <laughs> I promise yeah. I'm not trying to scam or fish yeah. fish anyone. I believe the expression is, but they look at it as like you 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 could be a scammer, right? So uh, so um so I'll I'll um I'll maybe write the name of your website as opposed to put it as a URL if 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 you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. This is the problem: is is the guest website might all be all secure now, but we right. don't know where it's going to be in a year's time, and of course, oh. you've only got to get three strikes within, um, I think, a three-month period, and that's it. That that right. that's your livelihood gone. Oh. Um, so anyway. Sorry, waffling on there, but massive, <laughs> massive thank you again. That's all right. Um, Good to talk. And I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll promote it and stuff once you uh, promote, uh, once you publish it, let me know the links and all that stuff. Thank you very much. Yeah. Just, just um, stay, stay on the line of Darren and while I say goodbye to our wonderful subscribers, massive love to you all. Please look after yourselves. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. If you could like and subscribe, that will help us to get you uh, many more wonderful podcasts and we'll see you next time.